curious what that sounded like. <laughs> Is mic still on? Okay. Uh, uh, so, we just wanted to have, uh, give a little opportunity for some questions, particularly because there's so many folks that are um, newer to the retreat environment. It's such a precious time to be in a field where you have practiced a bit, and the questions tend to be um, that much more kind of deeply felt and deeply experienced when we have some momentum. It's different than when it's just the cognitive question, but actually coming from something that is uh, alive and present uh, in your practice. So just I wanted to offer this space and the three of us will do the best we can to offer some something. Uh, up, uh, oh, no, question. Okay, yes, we'll start in. <laughs> Ready, go. <laughs> I wish it were easy. I wish it were easy. It's like one, I think one teacher once responded something like, well, like cut it out, you know, stop, stop thinking that way. Or, so obviously we, it's hard for these uh, changes to take place. Um, so many things that one, you know, we can, there's so many directions to answer any, any kind of question. One thing just to point to is, one of the things that happens, not always, but typically as we enter into a retreat environment and we gain some momentum, particularly, you know, day three, four, by day five, oftentimes the wholesome qualities of mind are as developed and cultivated as they've been in, in a long time. And we often get a little bit, even if it, we're having some difficulty with experiences, there's a sense of, the possibility of the goodness of this mind, right? And then we, we begin to feel like, oh God, like I don't want this to go. And then we think what is, what's awaiting us in life is the mind that's much more agitated, busy, picking up things that we don't want to pick up. I sort of like, I like to think of the long picture. And in the Dharma, like the picture can be maybe even depressingly long that we've got lifetimes, you know, to sort this out. And uh, I don't know if you want to come back. Uh, who knows? Who knows about all that? But, but thinking about practice as this long path, and as we experience the joys, the benefits of, of practice, the level of confidence oftentimes is at its peak towards the end. And we can actually really appreciate, oh, this is the benefit of having taken care of the mind moment, you know, moment by moment as much as we can. And it's amazing. 
not that we're all in a place of calm and ease. I know we're not. So wherever we're at, but there is a lot more knowing. There is so much more more knowing. There is much more uh, really being here than being in just the conceptual mind. It's like, it's lawful. That's the nature of what happens as you keep putting in these seeds. Oh, it's one of those moments where the mind just totally lost track. It was something really good I was about to offer. <laughs> God, it was the answer. Uh, uh, where, so, where was I? <laughs> lawful. Lawful. That's, lawful. That's true. I don't know what I was going to say about lawfulness. <laughs> so, and I have to make something up, because I'm not quite sure what, what, what else someone said. Where, where was I? What else was? Seeds were being planted, yes. Wholesomeness being cultivated. Momentum. These are good things. I'm sorry? This point in the retreat. <laughs> so close. I'm sorry? 25 minutes. You might get 25 minutes again. That's true. So, right, so confidence, faith. To actually, I'll just start wherever I was at. So, um, in a way, that's how we then start to get closer and closer to the Dharma, to practice, is that these, these you know, benefits that we begin to experience, they really remind us of the potential right, that we have. And rather than thinking we're going to lose it, this is when our practice becomes kind of most cherished. So, oh, this is, this is it. This is the possibility. And then we start to move into places of our life that we're not yet as practiced with. And the reason why this is all considered a path and a practice is that it's just that. We've, uh, you know, over time become better at, let's say, there's a little bit of discomfort in the body in the beginning, let's say very beginning of our practice, most of us could only sit still for like a minute, right? Two minutes, because there's no other option. There's just jump out of that. As we stay with it, we begin to have some more capacity. Now we can stay with the unpleasant and understand that there's a bit of reaction. So that begins to grow. And that's going to be the same really with all aspects of our life. And so this is the encouragement of the Dhamma, which is to, to look and see where am I still activated? Where do I get caught? Where do I lose awareness? In, an, in a silent retreat environment, what we're being supported in is this particular frame, which is a lot of silence, a lot of reminders. So it's natural that we have an ease growing ease of becoming more and more aware. And sometimes in a little bit longer retreats, we might do a little bit tomorrow, which is then to engage in what is it like to begin to look at someone and have a conversation. Because typically, the awareness goes out, right? We open the mouth and all this stuff comes tumbling out. We just go, oh my God, I just said all that stuff. And, And then we retroactively see what was skillful and what was unskillful. So then speaking meditation becomes part of our practice. <coughs> I oftentimes now, and I think probably Joanna does this as well, and I don't know, Yong's history of, of retreat 
guiding, but to actually start to include technology. So have moments where just playfully, like right now, just imagine your phone is in your lap. Scary. Okay, so now go ahead and just pick up your phone. It's amazing. No, no one wants to do it. Like, no one's doing it. Okay, just leave it there, right? Just yeah. No, so anyways, but that then becomes, right, a place that we begin to practice. How do I use, how do I use technology? How do I see my habits around emails? How do I engage in writing so that it actually brings a sense of... Uh, this is, it really is a deep practice. How do I engage in, in writing emails so that the mind can actually feel steady and not just I'm writing emails because an email is there? Because we see an email and we think, I have to now do something. And it's amazing. We are just tormented by everything that comes into the inbox. So part of the practice, which is a little bit of a wisdom practice, is to consider what am I doing? How much do I need to do? What's too much? What's too little? And those are parts of wisdom reflections that we bring into, uh, into our life, you know, into our ongoing practice. And this is an edge for really for all of us in terms of our ongoing practice. So I think we said we were going to talk a little bit more about taking practice home, but we've opened it up. So I'll pause there and just see what my friends have to offer around this. Your turn. So, so my question to you would be: um, In that moment today, when you found yourself more interested in emails than the present experience that you were having, um, did you recognize, or were you paying attention? Do you know what what was going on for you in that moment? Was it? Since you've been here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so so completely natural, right? Um, I mean, who else here has had those kind of thoughts arise, right? And sometimes <laughs> everybody. <laughs> um, oftentimes, you know, having whether it was a thought about emails or a thought about your last vacation or a thought about a conversation, it's it's a thought. Right? So treating it just like any other distracting thought. Okay, this is arising. Sometimes those kind of thoughts are arising because we're not really liking the moment that we're in. It's boring. Right? So I'm going to promote something in my mind that's more interesting. And sometimes even stress and tension are more interesting than being bored. So we'll just come up with something to think about. So in the, ne- in, you know, in the next day, day and a half, while we're still here, because we are still here, um, see what it is like to put it down. You know? And it sounds like you kind of did that. The thought arose, you know, slightly annoying. I'm going to put it down, just like any other thought. Um, I'm glad you had 25 minutes, and you didn't leave. <laughs>
How can we bring the ancestors into our practice? You want to talk about that, Jan? Um, yeah, it, so, so the first thing that came to my mind is how can we not, right? Um, if, the, if this body is sitting here, it got here somehow. And um, the ancestors are, are part of this, this body that's sitting here right now. So for me, my, the ancestors are a big part of my practice, um, they're not typically something in the insight, vipassana, mindfulness tradition that we would sit here and evoke as part of our practice. But if we're looking at causes and conditions, every cause and condition is an element of this very moment. Every cause and condition before it, it would be hard to ignore or avoid that. It would actually, in my mind, be a little bit diluted or, or like have qualities of ignorance, right? So I don't know why you're asking. Um, and it's a beautiful practice. It just came into my mind right before this session. Okay. Thinking about the ancestors. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some people will, I mean, I know I have an ancestor altar. Yang and I are in a training together, and a lot of our practice is around our ancestors. Um, so you can, you can, of course, absolutely make it whatever you'd like for it to be. But um, you know, kind of, like I said, kind of hard to avoid, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. I could talk about this for a long time, but <laughs> thanks for the question. I mean, he's saying, should I, do I want to talk about something specific? Well, the specific for me is having this altar. So I have photographs of my ancestors. I light a candle you know, every time I sit, and they're on my altar. They're part of me. Am I thinking about them? Am I evoking something? Not necessarily. But is there a deep awareness of where I've come from and my children and where you know th- that's going? So the years before, the years ahead. Absolutely, that's part of my conditioning. Um, do you want to... So, um, I think Joanna's really covered a good bit of what I would share around that. Um, one thing that's interesting, for, for me, I have a devotional practice, so bringing in the ancestors in my devotional practice is a... I don't know, we talk about that too much here. Um, and also, one thing that is really helpful for me is this, this idea that the practice we're doing isn't just for future generations, but that actually there can be some healing for some of the wounding and the traumas of previous generations. And I actually keep that in mind a lot, because in my family, for example, there's quite a bit the Korean War and lots of loss. And so I often think about the practice I'm doing now, here and now. Actually, there's some... You know, in Buddhism, there's some different kind of relationship with time. And they're sort of, I guess, exploring this. And um, I think you mentioned, is it epigenetics? Yeah, this kind of capacity to heal past wounding. So that's another way in which I hold it. Yeah. 
Just want to, even actually in the traditional teachings of the Buddha, it's interesting that we are not just like this idea that we are these separate entities. There is so much discussion the Buddha gave around our embeddedness in society and family structures and I mean, talking about the gratitude one ought to hold in one's heart for one's teachers, for one's parents, one's benefactors, a lot about family, responsibilities in family. I remember when I first started hearing about that, I didn't, because I, it was so much about it, like an individual project. And increasingly, there was a recognition of the Buddha was actually talking about the interdependence and causing conditions that are really just the whole vast network of life and reality. <laughs> and so it actually can really, for me, it, when I think about, um, like now that my older brother is a little bit like an ancestor, he died a year and a half ago, and I love considering his nature and what he offered in my life. And it just it brings such joy to see it you know, kind of transition from a real overwhelming grief to now this just a joy of what those qualities uh, bring to my mind. So I think we all have beings like that in some ways that we can reflect on that just bring some brightness. I remember there was a period in my practice where I was struggling a lot. And sometimes I just had these beings in my mind that I really trusted, either a teacher or someone, and they would kind of sit in my mind as I was struggling with something. So it wasn't just my personal mind. And so sometimes the Buddha would be there or some other figure. Um, and that actually is, there's a practice called Buddhanasati, which is one is holding the qualities of the Buddha in mind and it can brighten the mind. And I think we can do the same with an ancestor type of practice. Beings that brighten our mind and heart. It's a really good question. The question is around how to allow the breath to be natural and to not interfere with one's breathing. I think um, there's a couple a couple techniques that can be helpful. One is um, just allowing the breath to, for example, be breathed out to exhale. And just when that moment of needing to breathe in happens on its own to allow that to happen. Sometimes uh, expanding the awareness around the belly or, or the chest, just widening it rather than being so focused, that can help sometimes with the sense of breathing naturally. Um, generally speaking, I, I find that I just try to do my best uh, to allow it to be natural. And to some degree, it may be that there's control involved. There may be some 
habitual interference with the breath just because we're attending to it and to not feel that that's uh, necessarily a problem in the practice or or in our meditation. Just knowing that this, okay, it's like this. There's a little bit of control. I can sense that, um, you know, I think probably you could sense when there's some control. If you're not sensing it, if it's not an issue, then most likely it's not a problem at all anyways. So if you are sensing that sort of control, then just to relax around it and and try to do the best to bring some ease and practice with it, knowing that it's okay, that it's just a habit. You know, there's a lot. We're so used to controlling. You know, we're so used to kind of managing, including our breath. So when we attend to it. Yeah, I can speak to that. Uh, So the question is around the forgiveness practice and how um, they spontaneously had an experience of forgiving their mother. Um, Seems like a little bit unexpectedly. um, And realizing that there were certain causes and conditions that had led to certain maybe um, uh, poor conditions in her life and that it then affected you. Um, so, and then also the question of is what I'm hearing is, is there a forgiveness practice in the Dhamma and you haven't heard it so much? So the answer is yes. And, um, and it is actually taught on, on many retreats. Um, and I, I'm gonna, I want to talk about it a little bit because for me, the forgiveness practice was necessary before I was even able to really practice with any kind of loving kindness or compassion. I could not allow myself to care for myself or love myself or be kind towards myself because I felt like I'd caused a lot of harm through my life and didn't feel deserving of forgiveness, right? So that's when I formally discovered the forgiveness practice was because there was this real block towards kindness and care for myself through the loving kindness practice or the metta practice as we called it. Um, so the forgiveness practice has three parts to it. Um, it's forgiveness for ways that we may have harmed ourselves, forgiveness for ways that we may have harmed another, and then forgiveness for others who may have harmed us. And it actually can be taken on as a formal practice with phrases, um, and I'm happy to print those out and, and post them. 
um, Jack Cornfield also wrote a book called Forgiveness, and it and it lays out the practice really nicely. Um, but they're pretty, really pretty much phrases that just state, I forgive you for all the ways that you may have caused harm, knowingly or unknowingly, out of your own ignorance, out of your own delusion, out of your own pain and suffering. Um, I forgive you, right? Or I forgive me, or please forgive me. And we do this in, in a way where, you know, it can be sitting comfortably and in however you want to be sitting, um, in your couch or your chair or at home in bed. I used to do it just laying in bed every morning. Um, and allowing these phrases sort of just to wa- wash over you. But the, um, the point and the intention of the forgiveness practice is not actually, um, so let's say, like with your mother who, who's no longer here, the conversation can't happen, right? The forgiveness practice is really for ourselves. It's for the alleviation and the lightening of our own hearts and minds from any kind of burdens we may be carrying, right, around lack of forgiveness. Because as we know, lack of forgiveness is a huge block to love, right? So, um, so the practice is... is uh, you know, it took me maybe six months, so not a quick practice. It's never meant to be like, okay, I'm going to bust through, and I'm going to forgive everybody and myself and all beings, you know, today. You know, so it's really like t- allowing a lot of gentleness, a lot of kindness, a lot of time, a lot of care um, to slowly, you know, to slowly. I love that for you, it's just like this unexpected moment and experience. Um, but it is a beautiful practice to, to take on. Um, I'm trying to think what else I want to say about it. Um, I will definitely print it out and just, you know, and, and also just being, right, right. There you go. Also just the awareness just to, um, talk about this is not to, um, condone, any harm maybe that somebody may have caused us. So it's not saying, you know, I'm going to do this practice and now we're all better and you can come back into my house and you can come back into my heart and you can, you know, because sometimes the, the harm is, is so atrocious that it, it's not about bringing people back or, um, but it is about freeing our heart, like I said, our own hearts and minds from any burdens that we carry. You know, it's like the the Nelson Mandela um, quote about if he was still angry at his captors, he would still be in prison, right? So that way that we continually imprison ourselves by this maybe resentment or lack of resolve um, that that practice really helps to uh, work on. You know, and I started backing off of that a bit coming in because I noticed that the podcast and the apps were starting to inform what I thought my practice should look like. And I started comparing it to, you know, why doesn't my practice look like this person I just heard on on an interview? Um, So where do you see sort of the, so so I had a great conversation today with Jan about finding a teacher because that's synchronous, not asynchronous. And where do you see the the intersection of, of, technology and practice 
fitting and working because I, I'm all about democratization of information. Mm -hmm. That's great. But at the same time, it, I found it kind of, I, it's kind of limiting. And I'm keeping my subscription, so don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you answer that one, I'm, I'm just a little curious. How many people are here uh, because an app kind of supported their practice? And just see if there's are a few. Oh, there are a lot. Okay. It's very easy. In a way, it's, it's, the technology can often get such a bad rap. Um, <coughs> and... Uh, Just a few different elements about that question. So there's a factor of mind, right view, that the Buddha talked a lot about. And the way he said right view can arise in the mind is through wise attention or through the voice of another. And the voice of another is basically someone who has practiced a little bit can actually remind us there is this, there is this reality that we can begin to awaken to. There is this set of these practices. And I say that because apps these days are in a way the vehicle through which a lot of the Dhamma is being spread and communicated and articulated. And that is then the first level of wisdom that is talked about in the Dhamma, so uh, Sutta Mayapanya, is this information that we need to hear. We hear it, and it comes in. It's what's written or spoken, Sutta Mayapanya. So that is essential. If we don't ever hear information, we never even know the possibility. And it's said that only a Buddha mind, that's actually what distinguishes a Buddha mind, is that kind of mind can look into the nature of experience and find the path for itself. That's what makes actually this sort of cosmology is that's the nature of a Buddha mind. And then other beings can hear it. Luckily, we can hear it and then walk the path. And depending on how committed we are, that's how much benefit we get. So taking in information then becomes our intellectual information, chintamayapanya. So we consider it. We think about it. We say, yes, this makes sense. It's intellectual. And then it becomes insight, wisdom. We know directly experience is changing. We know directly the difference between being entangled and clinging to something versus letting go. So there, that is a progression. Apps can help us on that. Dharma Seed, which is a Many of you probably know already that website where all these talks are stored, all the insight communities, so many countless talks. I'm sure you, my friends up here and most of you have listened that have practiced a lot, a lot of talks. So we kind of hear it, we hear it, we hear it, we hear it, it reminds us. We get very close. Some teachers resonate with us and we listen to them and it gets internalized. And then at some point that wisdom really needs in a way I feel like it's like we internalize our own wisdom and then it can feel as if almost it's an imposition to be told what to do because it almost blocks the natural listening. What do I need to do in this moment? Because meditation is a deep listening over time. It's not, 
it's not, we're not creating experience, but it is a very dynamic, creative, responding process. And so I would just play with it and see when is more information useful. It expands our sense of what, is, what else there is in the Dhamma because it's vast. But then at times I just need to sit with something and I don't want, I don't need something else to come in right now. And then having the confidence to do that. And I would, I would say just play with it. Does that touch on all the points? Okay, great. Yes. Be mindfully. Mindfully multitask. Oh, good question. Young. <laughs> I'm just trying to think about actual experiences of multitasking. And how present I was. Um, I, th- I mean, as we all probably know, it's not ideal in terms of because our, our attention does get dispersed, divided uh, between the various activities we're engaged in, and so we're not really fully present with one. Sort of like the eating meditation that uh, Joanna was speaking about, like if we're just eating, then we can be fully with the experience of eating. But if we're, you know, checking our emails, talking to someone else, and so that doing different things at once, then our attention is not really fully landing in, on one particular activity. It isn't to say that we can't t- multitask. Um, But I just don't know how efficient or or how um, how fully present we can be if if we're doing multiple things at once. Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, my first response was I was a single mom for, you know, 15 years. <laughs> so I was like, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and, and sort of like Yang was saying, we can multitask. We can pay attention. But it's sort of like that lack of attention delusion that I was talking about last night, where it's a very thin veil of attention, right? Um, there's like a, there's kind of a forgetfulness that goes along with it. So one of the you know things that Alexis was pointing to along the lines of when we hear the teachings, we then need to assimilate it into our own being. Try it, you know, check check it out for yourself and see what happens when I'm talking on the phone, eating, holding a baby, washing dishes all at the same time. <laughs> Can totally be done, I promise. <laughs> but um, but how how well and how present. Um, yeah. So we're we're going to stop here. That you know, as as you know, questions are endless. Can I just add one thing also? Okay. Just really quick. Yeah. Because this, I like this because there is something that's really good to do multitasking, in a way, which is awareness. So being aware <laughs> with anything. Do that, do that multitasking. 
because it's actually, oftentimes we think I can't do something because I can't be aware blank. Actually check it out and see, can you be aware while you talk, while you do whatever it is that we do? Because my teacher would often joke about things like, no, awareness loves to, it's like a multitasker. Like it likes to be present for these different things. So just a little bit like a playful twist on you can do it. You can actually do what you're doing and be aware. So, so. okay. <laughs>